The following podcast contains swear words, swear words mostly uttered by my co-host, Jonathan Weiler. Shame on you, Jonathan. Welcome back to another episode of The Agony of Defeat, a podcast where we talk about sports and politics and history and sports and sometimes more sports. Uh, my name is Matt Andrews. I am a professor in the Department of History at UNC Chapel Hill. And I'm Jonathan Weiler. I'm a professor at, in Global Studies at UNC Chapel Hill. And we are so fortunate and grateful to be joined by uh, Jeff Perlman, who I know Jonathan and I have certainly been reading since his Sports Illustrated days. And then we actually can't keep up with his books. He puts one out about every two years, it seems to me. And um, Jeff, I've read uh, a few of them. I've read uh, Three Ring Circus and Showtime. Uh, Boys Will Be Boys and Your Football for a Buck. I'm just promoing all your books here. Uh, Love Me, Hate Me about Barry Bonds. I'm a Giants fan, so I love Barry Bonds. I got the impression that you actually hate Barry Bonds (laughs) when I read that book. Might be true. Might be true. true. Yeah, Yeah, read the book. I think it's true. Uh, Jeff does not hold his uh, punches when talking about about anyone, really, which I think is something that that Jonathan and I want to want to talk about. Uh, Jonathan, do you want to start us off? Yeah, yeah. so Jeff, first of all, I, I really enjoyed Three Ring Circus a lot. I, the, the only other book of yours I've read is your other Lakers book, Showtime, which I also liked a lot. And I know we're going to want to talk a little bit about just comparing your experience writing those two books. But Jeff, just right up front, I, I know this is something you've wrestled with. So much of Three Ring Circus is about Kobe Bryant, and of course he passed away earlier this year. And you speak very eloquently right at the outset of the book about when you write something like this, you're you're capturing a a moment in time and not the totality necessarily of the people you're writing about. And I, I, I would just be really interested to hear you reflect on and talk a little bit about Kobe, and, and you're writing about Kobe in the light of what, what happened a few months ago. I mean, the book was done before he died. So it really changes, um, kind of changes everything. I mean, the truth of the matter is a lot of the interviews I had with people probably wouldn't have existed, at least in the same form, if they were, they were done after Kobe died. You know, it changes everything. Because uh, the Kobe Bryant I wrote about between 96 and 04, a lot of times wasn't that likable. You know, he was young and he was cocky and he was kind of hard to deal with. And um, the Kobe Bryant who died was 41 and he was like a, a dad of, you know, four and a husband and sort of a, a youth coach. And so it's, uh, it's weird. I felt like a lot of the promoting of this book has been explaining that the Kobe Bryant you're reading about in the actual book isn't the Kobe Bryant who died. And, and it's almost like I, you find yourself defending the book a lot because um, you don't want people to think that you're attacking this iconic figure, uh, certainly taking not taking any pleasure off of, you know, you're just not trying. Yeah. It's confusing. The whole thing is confusing. It's really confusing and, and awkward and uncomfortable. And um, people have been good about it. I think for the most part, people have been understanding about it. But I got to say, it hasn't been the most enjoyable part of, uh, of this whole process. You know, there's nothing... I say it a million times and I mean it every time I say it. I would rather this book have never existed and that helicopter crash never happened. It's one of the worst tragedies. I mean, as a writer, I've never experienced anything like it where a guy you're writing about a major protagonist, your book dies. So uh, I don't even have people like to have mixed feelings about Kobe. I don't, I only feel horrible for his family and what they've gone through. I don't, you know, young Kobe was young Kobe, just like we're all kind of assholes when we're young. (laughs) Yes, we are. Um, well, so you obviously wrote the, the, the introduction, I mean, after the book had pretty much, I mean, not gone to press, but almost gone to press. Yeah. I, I thought you handled it really well, actually, just, you know, uh, talking about hearing the news. And you're in Southern California. Is that right, Jeff? I am. I yeah. Am. And so everyone there was obviously in, 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 in total shock. I'm kind of surprised to hear you haven't. And I, Jeff, I don't mean this as a criticism of the book, because I know what you do. You just tell the, tell the truth, basically, um, colorfully. But uh, 
you know, I, I'm thinking back to the finals that just happened when Rick Fox misses this shot that could have won the championship and he starts getting death threats. Oh, you mean Danny Green, right? Oh, Danny Green. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I, sorry. I'm thinking about your book when I said Rick Fox. I've got them. I mean, you and we're UNC guys. And so I got these UNC guys uh, yeah. messed up in my in my head. And I'm thinking if Danny Green is getting death threats, I mean, has it really been not been all that bad? Because look, I know Kobe fans, you know, we we saw this after his death when 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 people were writing for the Washington Post wanted to bring up his sexual assault moment and remind people of that. And that conversation was shut down by a lot of people. Yeah. Um, it's been all right. Yeah, it actually has been. I um I expected the worst. I wrote about a decade ago, I wrote a biography of Walter Payton. Yeah. And um in the lead up about three weeks before that book came out, ES, uh, SI ran a cover excerpt. And the excerpt was a lot about Walter Payton's sort of infidelities and depression and an out of wedlock child, et cetera, et cetera. And the backlash was the worst. It was the absolute worst. And who is this guy? No one had seen the book yet. So it was just how dare this guy write a you know book about Walter Payton and blah, blah, blah. And I think the difference is in a lot of ways is um, I just think in Chicago, Walter Payton was just an icon. And he was just an icon. And that's how everyone thought of him was this iconic, can't do wrong figure. And I think in LA, it wasn't a secret what Kobe was. It, his flaws were not a secret. Hmm. You know, people knew that, you know, he had these things and they knew about Eagle Colorado and they knew about the ego and they knew about the Shaq Kobe relationship. So I think uh, it just wasn't as shocking. And I don't think people resented me for writing about it. I think it's, I think the general take I've gotten is how could you possibly write a book about that era and just paint a complete glowing picture of these guys. It wouldn't make any sense. So it's been, uh, I was ready. You know, I was nervous about it and very nervous about it. And very, very nervous about it. And it just hasn't been very bad. Well, your book is definitely not a complete glowing picture of the, no. of, of the era, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder too, Jeff, whether to some degree, this is also a function of just the social media age now compared to even 10 years ago that, everybody's lives are, are such an open book and so transparent and whatever, I don't know, sort of gloss of um, infallibility we thought used to exist with celebrities just doesn't anymore. You know, we just- It might be true. It might be true, but the thing is we're also like, yeah, that's, that is correct about social media, but we're also people are quick to pounce and attack at the slightest, you know, anything. So I. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I did expect, I've probably gotten four negative tweets now and that's it. Mm -hmm. And I always say, I get four negative tweets if I write, I had toast for breakfast, you know, so <laughs> that hasn't been really bad. So I don't, you might be right. I just, I don't know. I, I feel like the introduction to the book, which I actually put out on social media before the book came out, mm -hmm. sort of, I learned from the Walter Payton experience. You have to prepare people. Mm -hmm. Nobody was prepared for the Walter Payton book. It was a smack. Oh my God, what is it? What did this guy write? So with this, I was trying to sort of prepare people. And every interview I, I was doing early on also was trying to explain, look, this is just a period of his life. It's not who he was at the end. This is a period of his life. It's not who he was at the end. Over and over again. Number one, because it's true. And number two, probably a little bit of self-preservation. Yeah. Yeah, I um wondering if you can help me understand Kobe Bryant a little bit, because I I've never really understood Kobe Bryant. And it seems like he didn't let people understand him to an extent. But w watching his career from from afar, um, I always just thought of him as a as a lesser Michael Jordan, a much lesser Michael Jordan, to be honest. Uh, someone who just took an absurd amount of shots. And I, I, uh, I teach a course called Race and Basketball here at UNC. And then students always ask me, oh, who's your top five? And I give them my top five. And all these 21-year-old say, well, where's Kobe? And I, I think I actually laugh. Like, what do you mean, where's, where's Kobe? Kobe? Kobe's not not on the list. In fact, in my book, he's not even all that close. And so I thought I was gonna read your book and I was gonna totally understand Kobe. I still don't get Kobe. Um, can you explain why people in Los Angeles, like, why do they love him so much? And why is he considered the greatest Laker when I think I speak for Jonathan and I, Magic Johnson is the greatest Laker in, 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 in both of our books. What, what am I missing? I don't think Kobe's considered the greatest Laker. I think he's, uh, you get that from younger fans. But I do think Magic is considered, I actually personally, why can I always, when I make my list of the greatest players of all time, I always put Kareem number one. Yeah. And people think, oh, you're just blah, 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 doing it for attention. I'm like, no, I'm not. 
guy was the best high school player ever, the best college player ever. And you can make the case the most dominant NBA player with an unblockable shot. If you do some research, you'll see it's a very legitimate argument. He's probably not the greatest Laker because a lot of his career came in Milwaukee. But um, I think the thing I learned from being out here in regards to COVID, I'm a native New Yorker, but I feel like what really resonated with people is the work ethic and the doggedness and this idea that you can have a dream and if you bust your ass and bust your ass and bust your ass, you can actually accomplish it. Like, I think that's something that really touched people out here. You definitely heard that. When he died, I, I kind of felt the number one thing you, you heard wasn't, oh, five championships. It was, he just worked and worked and worked. If he can work that hard, I can work that hard too. And I think hard work is a very relatable thing. You know, like not everyone, almost no one is born with the level of talent he was born with, but anyone can work that hard. You know, we all can control how hard we work. So I just think, I think that's the thing that touched a lot of people out here was a work ethic more than just the winning. And I do agree with you. I consider Magic the greatest Laker of all time. Yeah, and I'm with you on Kareem at the top of the list. And, and these same young kids say, but what about Shaq? And I just, you know. Kareem, yeah, no. Kareem will just foul Shaq over and over and over. And yeah. That, and that's that. Yeah. Well, I always say, what I always say, in a game of two-on-two, two, I think Shaq and Kobe would beat Magic and Kareem. But as far as five-on-five five NBA basketball players, huh. I think Kareem was, had an unstoppable shot. You know, there's no – he literally had a shot that was blocked maybe five times in his, the entirety of his career. That's ridiculous. I, 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 He's a LA guy too, Jeff. Uh, that, that's where I did. Oh, I love that. That's all right. That's where I did my undergrad. So I, 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 I agree with you there. And I'm going to steal that, that line if I can in my basketball class. So that's yeah. a good one. Go crazy. As long as, as long as you give proper citation, Matt. Absolutely. Jeff Perlman once is what I'll say. Yeah. That's right. And they'll say who? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Just a quick comment about. Kareem, uh, I actually just finished reading John Feinstein's The Punch. Uh, oh, how was it? it I, I, I liked it a lot. I mean, partly, so I'm a, I'm a few years older than you. I was born in 1965. I was 11 years old or 12 years old when The Punch took place. I remember it very well. Uh, so, you know, it certainly took me back. And I just thought he told a really, really nice parallel stories about Tom Janovich and Kermit Washington, and actually just a quick interjection, just thinking about, you know, you're not capturing the whole person. It's just striking the degree to which Kermit Washington felt he was and was defined by this one moment. And, you know, the book was written 25 years after the incident. And um, it, was, it was poignant and kind of sad that, you know, he, ju he just could not get past that. Yeah. Um, but, but the immediate reason I brought it up is just being reminded of Kareem's greatness, which at the time of the punch, he was really at the peak of his career. And it was and it was nice to be reminded of, as you just described, that completely unstoppable shot and just his his general ability. So. Yeah. Yeah, he was great. Well, and then if we want to add in what people were doing after their careers or even what he was saying during his career right I mean people it was William Roden who was just talking about who's the greatest is it uh, LeBron or is it or is it Jordan and, and, and he said it was Abdul Jabbar as well but I think he was thinking more about what what these guys have done um, off the court and he just yeah. consistently says the the right thing yeah um, why did you decide to do another book on the on the Lakers just uh, because you know there's a lot of people in Los Angeles and so a lot of people will buy the book or you, you, something about the Lakers that you're particularly drawn to second book about the Lakers um I mean I really uh I enjoyed the I enjoyed the uh the operation a lot um when I did Showtime I thought they were very engaging I thought the organization was very welcoming um they had a PR guy back in the day named John Black who was all about how can we help you what can we do to make this good for you and um, it always felt like they weren't trying to help me write a book that was favorable to them. They were just, they wanted to have good access and they wanted to, they believed in sort of journalism, if, if that makes sense. And that was very appealing. And I thought about Shaq and Kobe and, um, you know, um, the largeness of the characters, the awesomeness of the market, I guess living an hour away doesn't hurt. You know, I didn't when I wrote the last book, um, all that. And the truth of the matter is I was kind of disappointed. The organization has changed a lot. The PR guy is gone. They've gotten much more guarded. They're kind of a pain in the ass. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't as good as last time, but, um, 
I still think the story's really good. And I still think the characters are really good. And ultimately at the end of the day, I don't care what the organization is at all. Uh, at the end of the day, the thing I'm most drawn to is, uh, is characters, really good characters. You mentioned that in your acknowledgements. I am actually one of the people who read the acknowledgements and you said, for some reason, the Lakers were not very helpful uh, with this book. You think that was coming from, from, from Kobe? No, no. I, um, they're just a mess now. Uh, the NBA is a mess. PR-wise, the NBA is a mess. It used to be so easy. Access used to be open. Um, the NBA has gotten much more guarded. And also the Lakers, just being honest, the Lakers used to have a really good PR person. And now they have a kind of a mediocre team of meh. Um, it sucks. It's really disappointing. I mean, I freaking love that organization as far as dealing with them. But it's, uh, it's really disappointing. I don't know. I know. I don't think that came from Kobe at all. I don't even think he cared probably. So Jeff, you just mentioned a minute ago, you know, ultimately you're, you're most interested in just writing about telling stories about good, interesting characters. I'm just wondering in the, in, in the book, was there one person who stood out to you as the, the sort of most pleasant surprise in terms of how you connected with them, what you learned about them, their role in the story that you just hadn't anticipated before, before you started? Well, there was a guard. He was only there for one year. Uh, well, a year and a couple of days named Mike Penberthy. And um, number one, he was a great source of information, like a great source of information. And number two, he actually was really important. So in the 2000, 2001 season, he came out of master's college. He made the team last minute. He had a million stories to tell. Um, and one of the cool things is leading into the finals against the 76ers, he played um, Allen Iverson. So he was Iverson and he would mimic Iverson and, and, and all. And when he was in, in college, he was kind of an Iverson-esque guy at the NAIA level. A uh, lot of dribbling, a lot of slashing. You know, he didn't get to be that with the Lakers. So he has this one amazing run in practices where he gets to do everything he dreamed of doing. And this, the way he told it and just the, the idea of it all and the description of it all was so great. So I didn't, I didn't see that coming. I didn't know Mike Penberthy would be this wonderful sort of source and he couldn't have been any better. I thought you were going to say uh, J.R. Ryder. Oh, I love J.R. Ryder. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I've always kind of liked him too. He's an Oakland guy, just like me. That's where the similarities stop, I think. But uh, <laughs> yeah, he's, he, he sounded like quite a character as well. Yeah, well, he was great. And I, you know, you know I knocked on his door because I didn't have a phone number and I thought he was going to beat me up. And uh, at the end of it all, he's like, here's my phone number. Well, let's talk. And he gave me two hours and he was delightful also. I'm telling you, like, there's this, I'm a fan of guys like J.R. Ryder. I love talking to the quirky guys and the guys who maybe had bad reputations, but when you get to talk to them, you realize there's a reason for it. Or, you know, they were going through something or whatever. And he was, I love guys like that. I'm a huge, I'm a believer in fringe players on teams. Like, that's my thing. I love the fringe players. I feel like you can get more information from the fringe players than from the starters. Rick, Rick Fox being one of them. I mean, Rick Fox, you must have spent a ton of time with Rick, Rick Fox. Um, not a ton. We had a, a lengthy, lengthy sit down at a Starbucks. And um, he's always great. I mean, first of all, he was kind of a major player. So it wasn't like he was a role player like a yeah, rider. He was a big time player. Um, and really smart. And one of those guys who Phil Jackson sort of uh, trusted as a, as, a, as a locker room leader and a guy who always knew the pulse of everything. And also what you really want are guys, you want guys who are unafraid to tell you what happened and to be honest about it. And they look back and they don't look back protective, but they look back um, like someone would look back at a really fun time in a fraternity when they were in college. Mm -hmm. Those are the really money guys. And that's Rick. I mean, he's, he's that guy. He's not afraid to tell anything, tell you anything you want to know. He's super open, super honest, and very smart, despite going to North Carolina. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So Jeff, one of the things that I, I guess I appreciated being reminded of reading your book is that it seems like every five minutes in the NBA in the 1990s, a fight broke out or was about to break out. Um, the, the sport is just so different now. Um, and I, I just, I don't know, I'm, I'm just interested to hear your thoughts about just basketball then versus now just from the perspective of it's the, the willingness to fight, the physicality, the, 
I don't know, almost, yeah, the, I'm just wondering what, what you think about that. Well, I feel like nothing sums that up better than uh, <laughs> Shaq walking up to Greg Ostertag of the Utah Jazz <laughs> before a game and just smacking him. Or as we unpolitically correct used to say back in the back on the mean streets of my hometown, bit smacking a guy across. I mean, he just like smacks him and he falls and everyone's like, oh, there's no way that happens nowadays. There's no way that happens nowadays. It just doesn't happen anymore. Um, the NBA is very, you know, everyone's recruiting each other now. Yeah. I mean, it all kind of, I would say it all came to a head with the, you know, Miami Heat and, you know, LeBron and Chris Bosh teaming up with Dwayne Wade and this sort of, and then bringing in Ray Allen and this collegiality among players, which is totally fine, but it wasn't the way back then. Back then you were, if you wore different uniforms, you were, you were enemies and you were rivals. Um, I mean, there's another example when Chris Childs and of the Knicks and Kobe Bryant get in a fight. And all those Lakers, they didn't like Kobe that much. But as soon as Chris Childs smacks Kobe Bryant, they're all they all have Kobe's back. It wasn't like like nowadays, a lot of those guys would have probably been like they would have had some of those guys would have had the same agent as Chris Childs and they would have felt a loyalty to Chris Childs. Stuff doesn't just didn't exist back then. It was um to me, the NBA back then was really defined by the Knicks and Pat Riley, and Anthony Mason, and Charles Oakley, and Ewing, and Xavier McDaniel, and this idea that, like, you come to New York, we're going to kick the snot out of you, and um, you don't really have that anymore. I, I thought that was a really, it made the NBA really fun. I'll just note, I, I grew up three blocks from Madison Square Garden, and um, I, I'm a lifelong Knicks fan, and, I, and I, I, I lived and died with those 90s teams. They were great. They were great. How's that? Uh, how's that Nick fandom going these days? That going <laughs> That's a constant joke on our podcast. You having yeah. fun with that? You having yeah. fun with that? Well, I have great admiration for the owner, obviously, but yeah, he's a great man. I also think uh, I think R.J. Barrett is the next Jordan, so that's going to be good. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that the piece. next the next Lamont Jordan. I mean, <laughs> yeah. another line I'm stealing. Yeah, this is great. I'm I'm writing these down. I'm here uh, for you. So, Jeff, this book is about. Um, it, it's about Kobe, Shaq, and Phil, right? I mean, three ring circus and the and the three rings and the and the three main main characters. And you uh, you interviewed Shaq and you interviewed Phil. Phil, uh, um, I was struck by reading your book about Phil after having just seen The Last Dance, where Phil Jackson could sort of do no wrong. He was this sort of Zen master yeah. uh, figure, and you kind of tell a much more realistic version of him. I think. I mean, I didn't come out the other end liking Phil all that much. Um, oh really? Yeah, I actually love the guy. I gotta say, I really enjoyed him. I mean, I get it. Like from that time period, there's some yin and yang, and you know, highs and lows. But I, I mean, it's not really fair to gauge someone based on um, how he treats you. So, so that's not. But <laughs> I just not. spent. Well, <laughs> that's not what my parents told me. I know, but you know, I spent. Uh, it is funny actually. During my career, one of the things that used to drive me crazy is um, you'd interview an athlete, like Barry Bonds, perfect example. Right. You'd be like, you'd interview a member of the Giants and you'd say, well, what's, what's Barry like? And they'd say, well, he's always been good to me. And like two seconds earlier, Bonds isn't saying thank you to the guy holding the door to him. And he's giving them, he's lowballing a tip to the clubhouse attendant and blah, 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 blah. But he's always been good to me. So I don't, I always hate that. But I will say Phil Jackson, like he couldn't have been more gracious and more engaging. And uh, I did find him really endearing and kind of charming and, you know, I'm not, I don't think he's the greatest coach in NBA history, X's and O's wise. But I do think he understood players and understood the mentalities of players. And uh, I don't know, kind of a fan. But I certainly got the sense that he, that he was checking out pretty kind of, kind of big time by the end of his, his tenure with the Lakers there. Well, he was definitely tired of Kobe and just didn't, you know, it's hard to coach someone who doesn't want to listen to you. It's hard to coach someone who, uh, who, you know, thinks he knows better than you do. And when, when Phil Jackson arrived in LA, um, the Lakers couldn't have been more thrilled and all those players desperately wanted him there and Kobe included. And, you know, this is what happens. It's, it's not unique to, to there, but um, you kind of lose your message after a while and some players just tune you out and aren't as interested. And I just think uh, after a while they weren't listening, they weren't really listening. Kobe certainly was kind of done with it all. So. Well, and, and so Phil was open with you. Shaq was obviously open with you. I mean, I think sometimes to his detriment, you know, I'm reading what he says. And I think, why are you saying that, Shaq? But Kobe didn't talk to you, obviously. Oh, no, did not. Can, can you, you mind telling us a little bit about how that, how that went? 
it's not even that interesting. I, uh, I, you know, made a bunch of calls. Um, I was told early on, he probably wouldn't talk. I was never really told why, but I always assumed it was either because he had a book that just came out called mama mentality. Maybe, I don't know. You don't want to help someone else with the book or sort of the reality that, you know, Eagle Colorado hangs over this thing in this yeah. time period. And he talked about it once with a, a really good writer named Kent Babb from the Washington Post, but otherwise it wasn't a topic he really delved into. And I always say, and I really mean, um, nobody owes me. Like, no, Kobe Bryant certainly doesn't owe it to me to talk. He's not making money off of it. He doesn't get any final say. He doesn't have any editorial control. So I was never mad about it, but it was disappointing. Hmm. Jeff, any, any stories or people that just for reasons of space, whatever, didn't make it into the book that stand out to you or you wish you'd been, been able to tell or? You know what's funny? I don't really have anything. I've been asked that a bunch. And I always think the same thing. I say this, no offense. I'm like, if it's a good story, why would I leave it out? I always think that. I'm always like, why would I leave it out? But you know, you have stories that are told to you sort of off the record or look, you don't use this or blah, blah, those kind of things. But generally I'm a fan of emptying my notebook if there are good stories, you know? By the way, big props for ball four behind you. Oh. Nice book there. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Jeff, I'm gonna, if you don't mind, can we talk about maybe one of the characters in one of your earlier books? Talk about whatever you want. Um, all right. So this is a, a uh, and I'm going to say this sort of with a wink, this is a nonpartisan podcast. So could you explain to our um, listeners, um, this goes back to the USFL book, how literally everything Donald Trump touches turns to shit. <laughs> I mean, you, you nailed it. He, yeah. um, could, you, could, could you give us the backstory for those who don't know that story? And as we're coming to an election... Uh, I think maybe people should hear this story. It's funny. I was working on that book during the election. I kept screaming to people. He's a fucking con man. Like I would say that over and over again. This guy is a con man. It's just a con. Oh, no, no, no. It's different. Just a con. I'm telling you, it's just a con. Oh, no, 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 no. I told you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Not that I already, you know, not that people are like, oh, if only your book came out earlier. I was like, nobody's not voting for Trump because of the US. <laughs> but um, it's freaking so depressing. So, you know, I wrote that USFL book because it's my favorite league of all time. And I grew up with it. And I just love the USFL. And, um, you know, Trump buys into the league. He buys the New Jersey Generals after their first season. And he arrives and he's just raving about, I'm so happy to be getting into this league and the USFL. They really know what they're doing. And this is great. Spring football, blah, blah, blah. And as soon as he gets the team, he does what he always does. He does not. We need to move to fall. We need to move to that fall and take on the NFL. Nobody wants football in the spring. Like, you know, five days earlier, we were saying something completely different, but no, we need to move to fall. And the, the reality was he just wanted to get into the NFL. The NFL had never shown an interest in him. He did a low ball offer for the Colts. It wasn't taken seriously. Um, and he saw this as a way. He thought, I'm going to force a merger with the NFL, uh, threaten them, and hopefully they'll take my team. Not long after he buys the generals, he has a secret meeting with Pete Rozelle, the commissioner of the NFL. At a, he uh, rents out a suite at the Pierre and Tim Rozelle and one other guy who I interviewed. And he basically says to Rozelle, I don't give a shit about the USFL. I want an NFL team. If you help me get an NFL franchise, I'll throw this league under the bus. And Pete Rozelle, who is no, nobody's dummy, you know, like, why am I going to trust this guy if he's doing this to his league? You know, like, that doesn't make any sense. It's like someone cheats on their wife and then you start dating them and then you're shocked that they cheat on you. It would make no sense. And Roselle said to Trump, as long as um, I'm involved with the NFL, as long as my heirs are involved in the NFL, you have nothing to do with this league. He just knew he was a con man. And then Trump, you know, if nothing else, the guy's undeterred, starts uh, working on this plan to make the NFL, he wants the USFL to go to fall, challenge the NFL, sue the NFL, force the NFL's hand to merge. Lies to all the other USFL owners about all oh, the TV availability in the fall. Lies about meetings he had that he never had. Uh, says if they sue the NFL for antitrust violations related to TV, they'll win. It's a guarantee. We're going to win. Don't worry about it. Decides the best course of action is he should be the star witness in the trial. When everyone else is like, you need players, you know, I'm going to be the star. They sue the NFL. They win a dollar. The league dies. And Trump chalks it up as small potatoes and walks away. I mean, and the number of jobs that were lost 
the number of people whose dreams were killed. He never gave a shit. You know, he just, he never cared. This is a bad guy. Like, forget present, not present, just a bad human being, like a really bad person who just has never shown an interest in people and their well being. And it just sucked. I learned that from that USFL book in harsh ways. As I recall, though, since it was an antitrust case, the $1 was trebled to $3. It was, and I've seen the check. It was trebled to three. <laughs> So, and there was one, I, I guess, for lack of a better word, there was one whistleblower owner who I know you talk quite a bit about in the book, John Bassett. Oh, yeah. Um, seems, I don't know, I guess a, a tragic figure in a lot of ways. Did you see the John Bassett letter? Yes. Yeah. But can, can you say a little bit about that? Right. Oh, yeah, I can, I can do better than that. It was, all right. So I got this letter and it was written, John Bassett was the owner of the Tampa Bay Bandits of the USFL. And there's a one guy who saw Trump for what he was, which is a huckster. And John Bass, there are a lot of parallels between the USFL and Trump as a president. And one of the examples is John Bassett was one of the few owners who would stand up to Trump. And then he was diagnosed with, with a, he had a brain tumor and he wound up dying of brain cancer. And as soon as John Bassett started getting sick, Trump just walked over him. And it's the same thing as uh, John McCain, basically. Mm. And on August 16th, 1984, John Bassett on Tampa Bay Bandit's letterhead wrote this letter to Donald Trump. It's short. Dear Donald, on a number of occasions over the past meetings, um, I have listened with astonishment at your personal abuse of the commissioner and various of your partners if they did not happen to espouse one of your causes or agree with one of your arguments. It is obvious from the record that you are a talented and successful young man. It's also a fact that I regard you as a friend and an owner who has made a contribution to the league in general and been a savior to the New York, New Jersey in particular. While others may not be able to let your insensitive and denigrating comments pass, I no longer will. You're bigger, younger, and stronger than I, which means I'll have no regrets whatsoever punching you right in the mouth the next time an instance occurs where you personally scorn me or anyone else who does not happen to salute and dance to your tune. I really hope you don't know that you're doing it. You are not only damaging yourself with your associates, but alienating them as well. Think before you shoot, and when you do fire, stick to the message without killing the messenger. Kindest personal regards, John Bassett. <laughs> and I really, I really think that letter really got to Trump, and I think he really learned from that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was going to say the good news here is that Trump hasn't gone anywhere in life behaving that way. Yeah, no, it hasn't done him any. He really, I, I think when he joined the priesthood, it really, you know, it showed that he learned. <laughs> well, we're out here in North Carolina, you know, one of these these battleground states. We got a Californian and a New Yorker down here doing our best. You're out there in California where everything's. <laughs> We, we know which way California is going to go. It, it, gosh, if, if, if it goes the wrong way, you all aren't going to secede from the nation, are you? Man, I don't know. It's tempting. I bet. Wow. Do you feel like North Carolina, do you, do you have any inkling on which way you think Carolina is going to go or no? Uh, I, I feel like it's really a straight coin flip. Yeah, Jonathan's the political scientist. Jonathan assured me being a political scientist, I had nothing to worry about four, four years ago. I, I, I was very confident four years ago. Yeah. Well, are you confident now? Uh, I actually should be more confident now than I was four years ago, yeah. but I'm less confident. So because just because of what happened four years it, ago. Exactly. Yeah. 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 The the objective picture is better, uh, but that scarcely matters. We're all basically recovering from an abusive relationship. We, yes. Yeah. No. no, we we are all dealing with trauma for uh, uh, really. Uh, Jeff, are you working on something now, or, or do you you got got ideas about where you're going next? What are the next books I'm going to be? Dave I'm actually doing. I've uh, been working on a Bo Jackson biography. Oh, sweet! Yeah, oh. I would imagine Bo is pretty pretty open to talking to you. Not that great, really. Your imagination is incorrect. Oh, he, uh, he's a pretty guarded human being. Actually, he spoke with me. We talked. We talked for about a half hour. He was great in telling me he wasn't going to help. Like he wasn't a jerk about it. He was nice, <laughs> but he basically gave me a half hour to tell me he wasn't really going to help. But um, I still hold out hope. And, 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 nice and, in those Nike commercials, though. I don't. I'm. I'm shocked. I love Bo Jackson. Yeah. What, what What drew you to? What What makes you want to write about him? So he's everything in my wheelhouse. He really is. Um, nostalgia is my number one thing, and I'm super nostalgic about Bo Jackson. I love, love the mythology of Bo Jackson. Like to me, that's the best part. Like if I've said this a million times, I really mean it. Bo Jackson went on to be Eric Dickerson. Or he went on to be Eric Dickerson and Dave Winfield, whatever, like have those two. Let's say he did both. He wouldn't be nearly as good a book or as interesting a story as the fact that there's this mythology about him. You know, like he's like a modern day sports Paul Bunyan where there's just this thing about him and what could have been. And 
you can see his highlights on YouTube and even they don't do justice to the, like I am, I'm researching it now. And the other day I was reading through old clips. I'm just going day by day through articles about Bo Jackson. And I came across this small one. I thought it was amazing. It told, told me everything you need to know about Bo Jackson. It said, it was 1989. And it said, the other day during batting practice, Bo Jackson hit the fourth longest home run in uh, the history of the Metrodome, right? And then it said, he did it lefty. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. He yeah. doesn't hit lefty. He was just goofing around. And he hit the fourth longest. His first home run in major his first home run was the longest home run in the history of Royal Stadium. Wow. His first hit was a ground ball to second that he beat out. Like it's preposterous. It's I, I, rem I remember watching the Monday night game against the Seahawks yeah. where he both broke off a 90 yard run and then just ran over. Boz. Um, I'm blanking on the name of the Oklahoma. Brian Bosworth. Yeah, Bob, Bob just ran over him on the goal line. You know what the funny thing is? I will say about that. If you look at it, sometimes mythology is a little bit, I mean, you guys know, it's a little bit over, yeah. overstated. Yeah. That 91-yard run is amazing because yeah. everyone has angles on it. Like Kenny yeah. Easley was their safety. Yeah. Kenny Easley is a Hall of Fame safety. He had the, he had the obvious angle, and Bo just goes. Yeah. But Bosworth, <laughs> you watch it again. Yeah. There's no linebacker, Lawrence Taylor, Dick Buckus, Khalil Mack. No one's making that tackle. And uh -huh. nobody's making that tackle. So it's a little bit like, it's almost like Bosworth has been thrown under the bus a little bit when yeah. he wasn't run over. He went in for the tackle and Bosworth just steamed up, you know, kind of slammed into him. But there's no human being who makes that tackle. I mean, uh -huh. Bo Jackson, Bo Jackson had a 41740 and he was 230 pounds. It's a joke. It's a joke. Everything about that guy's a joke. It's the best. I'm a Giants fan. I vividly remember him ruining Rick Russell's career when he hit that home run off of Amazing. the All-Star Game. Russell, Russell was never the same. You know, Ronald Reagan was in the booth. It was Vince Scully and Ronald Reagan calling really? the game. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's just a great – and that, it's, it's like everything about that is Bo Jackson. Like, of course, Ronald Reagan was in the booth. Bo Jackson. <laughs> right, right. Yes, right. It, it was in um, – uh, Buck O'Neill, who says there are, there's the sound of the crack of the bat that he's heard three times. What is it? It's Josh Gibson, Mickey Babe Mann. Ruth. Oh, Babe, Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth. You know what? I'm calling a little bullshit on that one, though. Well, just, come on. Uh, on, 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 a, on, a, on a Negro League legend? <laughs> I, love, believe me. I love Buck O'Neill. But I don't know. When I hear stuff like that, when people are like, it just, it sounds different. Like, I covered baseball for X number of years. If you showed me, like, a Mark McGuire batting practice home run, if you played me the audio of a McGuire batting practice home run and like a Mike Sweeney batting practice home run, <laughs> are they that different? I don't know. <laughs> Just like saying. It. Yeah. So, so Bo, and you got any others that, that you're thinking about, or you just think one book ahead of it? Um, one at a time. One at a time. Yeah. And then, do you mind if I ask you this? And I, I don't know, maybe, um, this is less interesting to talk about, but I'm fascinated. How, how do you organize all of this information? Can you explain, like when you're setting off to do something? Because I, I follow you on Twitter and I get the sense that you work in a cafe a lot. And I, I'm trying to- Well, non-pandemic. Like, well, non right, right. But when you're writing this book, living the, South, the Southern California lifestyle, taunting me out here in North Carolina with the pictures of the of the ocean. Well, where are you, by the way? Are you in Laguna Beach or? I'm, near, I'm right near Laguna Beach. Okay, that's what I kind of figured from the pictures. Yeah, it's just yeah. beautiful out there. So how do you go to a cafe and, sorry, I know this is maybe a weird question, but can you explain your your process? It's messy. I mean, I, um, I always say like, I, there have to be people who see me walk into a cafe, see me put my stuff down and it's like slide two tables over. <laughs> Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't really want to deal with this guy. Um, everything for me is about folders. Everything is about folders, literal folders, uh, printing stuff out, having them in order. So if I'm, most of these books follow some level of chronology. So if I'm writing about the 89 Raiders, just as an example, I have everything printed out, 89 Raiders, highlight through them. And then I'll, um, I'll have all the players from that era printed out and go through them and highlight just it's a lot of moving pieces of paper kind of coming here and coming there and going all over. It's not, there have to be a million better ways to do this. There have to be, you know, but I feel like I'm a little too old to change that specific way approach, you know, it's kind of worked for me. Like I was going to say it's worked, it's worked well enough. I mean, you know, I'm able to write books for a living. So, so, so Jeff, uh, since we're sort of doing a little bit of your greatest hits, uh, one I was thinking earlier. I didn't know I have any great hits. I'm no, happy no, no, uh, the, the one I'm about to mention is definitely a greatest hit. When I was thinking earlier today about this conversation, 
I was thinking about John Rocker. And the thing I was thinking about was the degree the 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 rocker is Trumpian and there's there's this um, I don't know does does Trump, does rocker augur this future in which a Trumpian figure is I mean he seemed at the time when he wrote about him so outlandish and outrageous um, and there's a way in which that has become that kind of outrageousness has become so mainstream um, so I don't know just uh, well, you know, what's funny. People say people have asked me, first of all, it's funny, like um, I've spoken to colleges for years. You know, you do this job and you talk to different journalism classes. It's funny how nobody knows who John Rocker is anymore. Like it, which makes me happy because he belongs in the dustbin of history, you know, but like 20 years ago when it came out, if you spoke to a class of 30 aspiring sports writers, everyone knew who he was. Yeah. 10 years ago, 80 percent. Now it's two or three hands at most. And it makes me feel very old, but also like happy because he doesn't deserve it um people but people ask me like wh what would it be like if it came out now in the era of social media and i think when people ask that question it's the presumption is oh it would be crazy and i think it's the opposite mm -hmm. i mean right now as we speak trump is tre trending with a uh, leslie Stahl because he released a 60 minutes thing and everyone's like oh my god oh my god see if we're talking about th that tomorrow we're not right. you know everything comes and goes and i feel like First of all, John Rocker's comments back then, which were grotesque, they're no more grotesque than half the crap Trump says every day. So I don't think they would resonate nearly in the same way. And I just think the turnover would be so quick that it would last. That story, you guys probably remember, I mean, that story had legs. Like yeah. that thing lasted a long time. I think now it lasts a day and then we move on, you know? Huh. Yeah, I don't mean, uh, I don't know. It was a weird time in my life. It's a story that I... Uh, it's definitely on my resume. It used to be glued to my forehead. Sure. You know, like I was the rocker guy, you're the rocker guy, blah, blah, blah. And now I am, uh, I think people think more of the books than John Rocker, mm -hmm. which makes me happy. Yeah. Well, my questions are getting less and less serious, I, I, I think. Um, I laughed out loud um, with your, your reference to uh, Kiss's music from The Elder. Ha, uh, your reference to which is a t terribly misunderstood album i would just like to i mean it's not a great album but it's not <laughs> as bad as people say i think I, I it might be both of those things yeah it might be terrible yeah um is that your first kiss reference in one of your books oh no what no I, no, no i'm I'm trying to remember i'm sure i think i made a music from the elder reference in another uh oh shoot all right i'm gonna have to go go back you must have laughed out loud when you came up with I feel like you didn't read the dedication to this book. Do you have the book with you? I do. If you look at the dedication, uh -huh. you will notice. I'll give you a second here. All right, I'm looking at it. I mean, to the, Gary Miller. Mary, Mary Roberts Reinhardt? No, no, no. Go one. Look, no, no, no. It's the dedication. Go, let's see, right there, maybe on the right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. To Gary. Oh. I didn't even notice that. <laughs> Selfish need to be Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Near. So who is Gary Miller? Let's throw him under the bus. Oh yeah, no, Gary Miller's actually, so he's one of my best friends, if not my best friend, lives in North Carolina, lives in Raleigh. And when we were kids, we used to be like big Kiss fans, like young kids. And one day we had this, uh, this argument because he was being an asshole and he insisted on being Gene and Paul. He was gonna <laughs> make me be Ace and Peter. And I was like, no, we got in this fight and he ran through a glass window. Um, chasing me so uh but there are kiss references many kiss references throughout the years this is not the gary miller who was on espn for a long time no different not the gary miller who peed out a window okay. <laughs> not, that's too bad yeah all right just 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 uh I, one more quick comment from me and i guess since we're we've been talking about trump jeff the the, the i thought the single craziest story in three ring circus was the elevator fight in oh, yeah. 98. <laughs> Jason Williams, the old Mets powerful. Charles Oakley. Charles Oakley, Kobe Bryant. And Trump. And, and Trump. And Trump is the, is the peacemaker in the, in, in the elevator. That was just a, a, an extraordinary confluence of people and personalities at that. Oh, funny. Yeah, that was, um, that was Jason Williams actually told me the story initially. And then it checked out. You know, uh, Trump used to own the uh, hotel. It took place in the uh, Grand Hyatt uh, above Grand Central Station, and the All Star was being the All Star festivities were based out of there. And uh, 
Yeah, that means Trump Trump has appeared in almost as many books as Kiss has now for me. You know, Trump <laughs> has made multiple appearances. It's kind of funny. There's so many good stories that that one almost came and went and very few people asked me about it. Oh, basically they're all in a, in a elevator and uh, Jason Williams doesn't like the way Kobe talks to him and actually takes a swing at him. And he said, Trump is the one who's holding him back. Like, yo, Jason, 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 blah, 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 blah. This is a funny moment, you know? And this is Black Weird Jason guy. Williams, the guy who killed the... Not white chocolate. The guy who, yeah. Not white chocolate. Yeah. The guy, the guy the... who killed his gardener, right? Wasn't no, it? it was a limo driver, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a limo driver. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we probably shouldn't keep it too much longer. I'm sure you got some California sunshine to enjoy. But can, uh, Jonathan, can you remind me how we managed to get Jeff on this podcast? How did this go, go down? And I want to see if Jeff has any regrets. Yeah, well, well. so when Jeff, three weeks before the book came out, Jeff put out a call on Twitter and said, I will talk to literally anybody. <laughs> I didn't mean you too. Yeah, and, and I thought that had our names written all over it. So I <laughs> sent Jeff a message and he he was true to his word. So we is this a, is this a big time get? Is this a big time get for you guys? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, for us. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's what I said. Yeah. yeah, this is one of the things I noticed about you on, on Twitter, Jeff, and I got to say how much I, I appreciate it. Um, you, you'll get on an airplane and you'll just send some message and just basically say, I'm on an airplane for the next three hours. I'll talk to anyone who wants to talk about sports writing or something along those lines. Did you have a mentor, someone who did that to, to you? Are you paying it backwards or you just... You know, I just, I don't know, you know, I, I just... I've had a lot of mentors. One of them actually has North Carolina connections, which is, uh, he's a professor at Delaware who went to UNC named Chuck Stone. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Chuck oh, Stone. Oh yes, Chuck Stone is legendary here. Absolutely, yes. And he was my first professor at Delaware, my freshman year. Larger than life. I, I think what, what I've had are a lot of genuinely nice people help me out and people who didn't have to help me out, people who are very patient, people who are very decent. And I think when you're exposed to people like that a lot, you try, I'm not saying I match that, but you try to be that way. And also one thing I've learned along the way is um, somebody else's success doesn't take away from your own. So it, and it, it, that took me, a, that's a hard lesson to learn. Like jealousy is this thing. And if someone else has a book, you're, you tend to be jealous of that. Or you, and mm. I have to beat myself. Sometimes I still get those inklings and I have to remind myself, that's not, you don't want to be that person. And I do think like, as I've gotten older, um i really try to be more and more helpful to people and just because it's a hard business to make it in it's a hard business to succeed in if you have any kind of anxiety or you succumb to pressure it's a really tough world so i just i don't know why not help people if you can i just want to say i appreciate academia is a world where there's just constant social comparison your your resume your publications etc and so i I, I, I appreciate the, the, the sentiment and sentiment. I was, uh, I was fired as a, uh, as a student newspaper advisor at Manhattanville College. So I know uh, academia quite well. <laughs> I felt the, felt the pressures of it. Uh-huh. <laughs> people, they don't judge themselves based on other people in Los Angeles much, do they, Jeff? No, never, never. Yeah, that doesn't happen out there. <laughs> yeah. Never, never, yeah. Very well, humble place. Well, thank you so much. I mean, this is our huge break. This is what's going to send us into the stratosphere, having you on the show. So we, oh yeah, so we really appreciate that. It was awesome talking to you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks. Great question too. Really yeah, enjoyed. Thanks, it. Jeff. We appreciate it. All right. Take care, guys. Be good. Take care, man. That was awesome. So, uh, Jonathan, you and I, we need to come back on this podcast soon and t- talk about politics and and history. Yes. But it was fun to take a break and revisit the the Kobe and. And, and Shaq years. For those of you who haven't read the book, yeah, Three Ring Circus by Jeff Perlman, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the crazy years of the Lakers dynasty. Uh, it is a kind of unflinching look <laughs> at those years. I don't think anyone comes out the other side of this book looking particularly good. Uh, I agree. Uh, yeah. Except for maybe Mike Pemberthy, who yeah. mentioned in the, in the interview, the, Even, the, the would-be Iverson, yeah. Yeah, uh, and yet people keep talking to, to reporters, I think that's interesting. Um, I, I think there's an interesting psychological angle to, to that, right? Once you get out of the limelight, although why Shaq is talking to anyone when he's on T, you know, uh, TBS or TNT, whatever it is, every other night. I, I, find I, that I think in a way Shaq is just so unfiltered and unselfconscious that, I mean, I, I think of Shaq as in a way so in the moment that 
that's what he's thinking about is just that experience right then not how it's going to look or sound or feel even 10 minutes later yeah yeah he sort of lives up to that mantra that there's no such thing as bad publicity yeah, right? yeah. Where, where kobe bryant sure seems to come out the other way what a guarded and we, we yeah. really didn't get into the just sort of fascinating psychological character that Kobe Bryant is. And so for those of you who are interested in Kobe Bryant, read this book. Yeah, I'll say one thing about that, Matt. And I did think about this while I was reading the book. When you're in the public spotlight, there's a way in which you both grow up much faster than you do otherwise. And the people expect you to have grown up much faster than maybe is appropriate. So, you know, by Kobe, he's, He's a third year veteran. There are all these expectations about how he should comport himself, et cetera. He's 20 years old. Yeah. You know, and we just, we, we have this set of expectations about people in the public eye. And I think Kobe in particular, the, the sort of mismatch between both his chronological and emotional age on the one hand and his celebrity on the other was especially sort of stark. So. Yeah, and but the counter argument would be by the end of the book, you know, ninety six, um, right? Ninety six or no? Two thousand four. Two thousand four yeah. starts in ninety six. Two thousand and four. Had he grown up? I mean, it, it, oh, true, true. Um, yeah, yeah. And we right, we didn't even talk about the accusation that was made against him in Eagle, Colorado. Jeff Jeff referenced it a couple of times. That gets big play in the book. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's yeah. A, now it's a, it's it's one of the significant stories Jeff tells. Right. All right. You want to do your thing? Where where you sign us out? Yeah. Yeah. So this has been another episode of Agony of Defeat. And you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, certainly on SoundCloud, uh, iTunes, and we will look forward to speaking with you again soon.